Hello, and welcome to MacCast, a podcast from the Department of Media and Communication at St. John Fisher College. I'm Dr. Lauren Vicker. We have a special guest on MacCast this week. Since our move to online courses, we've been talking to students about how they are handling the coronavirus pandemic, including students from New York City. Today, however, we welcome an eyewitness to the apex of the pandemic, Dr. Christina Rager, sister of Dr. Dawn Rager of Fisher Psychology Department, has just returned from a week volunteering at Queens Hospital Center in New York City. Dr. Rager is a specialist in critical care medicine, emergency medicine, internal medicine, pulmonary disease, and she is currently based in Rochester at Rochester Regional Health. She's returned safely to Rochester and is here to talk about her experiences on the front line. Dr. Christina Rager, welcome to MacCast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, now you and I met some years ago when you were at your sister's house and you were just working on planning your residency. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and experience in medicine? So I have sort of bounced around the country. Um, I went to school at Stony Brook on Long Island for undergraduate school. Uh, then I went to SUNY, I went to a lot of school in uh, New York, SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn for medical school. Uh, then I took the trip out to UCLA where I did um, residency in internal and emergency medicine combined. Um, terribly missed New York, so came back to NYU where I did pulmonary and critical care. I worked out on Long Island for a little while and also worked in other places in the country. And then finally came up here to Rochester to work with my, to, to work where I am now and to be near my sister. Oh, that's so nice. But if I recall, this isn't the first time you volunteered to go into a difficult or dangerous situation. <laughs> no, no. So I've done a fair amount of volunteer work. Um, in medical school, I took a few trips um, to other countries to spend some time. Um, I would love to say I was helpful, but I was probably learning more than anything. Um, <laughs> also did that in residency. And since I have graduated, I do a lot of travel to South America um, once or twice a year to do some volunteer work there. So, so how does it actually work when you volunteer to go into a, a hot zone or difficult situation? I assume your employer has to sign off and are you part of a group? How, how does that work? Um, I am part of a group. I, I know some folks who run a small organization that they actually do surgical eye missions and medical missions in South America. And they were able to set up their program because they knew um, some pretty well-known doctors in those areas. So they were able to sort of get their footing. Um, and then it is, it's, a, it's an incredible amount of coordination to be able to get practitioners down there uh, safely and also with us able to practice medicine legally in that country. Um, I do not have to get permission from work um, because I spend my vacation time going and my medical malpractice does not cover me down there. Um, so it doesn't require any permission or anything like that. They do like to know that I'm going. Um, for the trip to New York City, I did want to make sure that they were aware because I could potentially be bringing a visitor home with me that they might not be so welcoming of. Oh, right, right, exactly. So, so you've had so much experience, um, especially with the pulmonary care that's needed for so many patients with the, with the COVID virus. Do you plunge right in or is there some kind of orientation when you go to a different hospital to help out? That was that was quite an experience, actually. Um, 
it was a little bit of a dive um, right on in. The doctors there were incredibly welcoming and showed me around, but to, to, be, to be honest, really the practice of medicine is, is pretty similar anywhere you go, or especially at least in critical care. They were doing some treatments and things like that that we don't necessarily have access to up here as much as they did. Um, so it was a little bit different in that way. Some of the more experimental or questionable treatments were being given more regularly. Um, but other than that, most of the care is the same. You just don't necessarily know where everything is, but everyone's willing to help you with that part. Right, right. And from the images that we've seen on TV, it seems like they're most grateful for any hands that come in to help out. <laughs> they, they were, absolutely. Now, do they give you housing while you're there and food and that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Health and Hospitals is a pretty big corporation of city hospitals and they provided hotel. There was an arrangement with another company and you could request the dates and where you needed to be and any special needs that you might have. And they just basically contacted you within 24 hours with the hotel. And so you stayed nearby then? Yes where you were working. Now we've heard a lot about um, personal protective equipment and some of it being in short supply. Did you have experience with that? A little bit. Um, so to preserve the protective equipment, we just use masks that we would normally use once and throw away, um, which is happening pretty much everywhere. That's universal. Um, for the most part, there was plenty of equipment. It definitely did seem at times like it was a day-by-day -day thing. Um, there would be dwindling boxes of gowns um, in the doffing area by the emergency department the night before, and then the next day it would be replenished. Uh, there was one particular night where there wasn't any gowns on the floor where I was, but I was sort of okay without it. Um, I think everyone had what they needed, but it was a little, it was concerning. Uh, but the very next day, I spoke with the director of the department. He actually seemed kind of surprised. So I think by the time I arrived there, there really wasn't much of a problem. I think most things had been funneled. Most resources had been sent at that point. But I wouldn't have been surprised if just a couple of weeks ago, they were running out of stuff. Yeah, I did hear the governor in one of his briefings say that hospitals like to have two months supply. And he was assuring them they would have two days supply. So I could see where that would make you pretty nervous. I noticed on your bio that you're bilingual. And so obviously all that time you've spent in South America, you speak fluent Spanish. Was that helpful having Spanish? It was helpful to some degree. Um, to be quite honest, most of the patients there were already on the ventilator. So I didn't have to speak to them very much. Um, a little bit with family, a little bit with other healthcare workers. Um, I did speak some Spanish, but, um, and I think it, it could have potentially been helpful had had more people been conscious. Um, but by the time they meet me, most of them are not anymore. Right. And so, and you don't have a chance to talk to family in this situation because they can't come to the hospital to be there, even, even in a waiting room, correct? You don't get to talk to them in person. Um, yeah. Most physicians are fairly diligent about making phone calls to update families, especially if they're very ill. Um, but I was also not necessarily doing that part of the work because um, mostly I was working at night when I was in Queens. Oh, okay. All right. So how would you describe this experience um, in comparison to what you're experiencing with COVID patients here in Rochester? 
it felt like a different world. It's so hard to say for sure. I think the the system down there is incredibly overwhelmed and just very dense at baseline. Um, and so I think patients wait as long as they possibly can. And so by the time they arrive, they are incredibly sick. It almost felt like a different disease is what I've been telling people. Um, it obviously isn't. It's just a different population and different degree, different severity of disease, I think. Um, people here are quite sick as well when they have it. I think the, the feeling of being overwhelmed is, it plays a lot into also the perception of how sick people are. And here it's frightening, but it's probably not as overwhelming as it is down there. Um, but I feel like, you know, we're still worried about our per protective equipment. Um, we still use the same mask for a few days. Um, we try to not go into rooms too much for a number of reasons to, to preserve equipment and to not expose ourselves very much. Um, but yeah, it just, it felt a little scarier down there. And wow. then that was actually when things were starting to get better than Queens. Wow. So by comparison, yeah, we're pretty lucky up here in Rochester. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud of my fellow Rochesterians. Um, okay. Um, yes, that's it. <laughs> um, they've really risen to the occasion and helped us by staying home. Mm -hmm. That's great. So do you feel like this is taking a real mental as well as physical toll on the healthcare community? I do. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I was concerned that I may be sick when I was down there was I started having these very vivid dreams, which hadn't happened up here. And they mentioned it to the other physicians there and they said, oh yeah, <laughs> all those, <laughs> we've been having those. Um, so I think many people are overwhelmed by the level of illness um, and just the level of patient load. So I think it does take a toll being exposed to all of that. Um, there are also a number of physicians who are volunteering and, and working who don't usually do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Same for nurses, all the staff. And yeah. so I think it can be alarming when you're not used to that level of illness. And so I think that also takes a toll. Um, wearing a mask and feeling so distant from everybody and everything around you also is very isolating. So I think there's a lot of aspects to that. Um, when I was in Queens, my biggest concern was actually the house staff, the residents in training. They were absolutely amazing and rose to the occasion, but watching them do what they were doing um, uh, with the patients and dealing with patients dying as frequently as they were was really, I worry that they're gonna be okay when this is all over. I don't think they've had a chance to take a breath and and do any self-assessment yet. Yeah, I think that's the impression that we do get from, from the little inside glimpses we've received from the media. Are there um, coping mechanisms, you know, other than going out in the hallway and crying or screaming or whatever, but are there people who are actually watching out for the mental health of, of these people on the front lines? I can tell you in Rochester, um, or at least at, in my hospital system, there are, there are lots of support mechanisms. There is a, a drop-in group that is available, I want to say, a couple of nights a week, if not every night. Um, 
we are all very supportive of each other as well. But um, there, was a, there was concern about that. Um, in Queens, because I'm not so integrated in the system, I'm not really aware of what's happening there, but the residents and the attendants that I worked with did say that those things were available to them if they needed it. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned about the isolating because I've heard people say, and I've experienced this myself, you go to the grocery store and you're wearing a mask and then you're standing behind this plexiglass barrier and you really don't get the, even just that little brief interaction that you might get with the, with the cashier there. Right. Exactly. So that can kind of make it difficult. So do you think, are we gearing up for an increase in COVID patients in Rochester or do you think we've reached a peak and we're on a downward curve and now waiting for the second wave or what sense do you have of where we're going? I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, at my hospital, the hospital where I work, um, we have not had an excessive number of patients. There are larger hospitals in the area that have had many more and they may have a different sort of feel. We have had a very steady number of patients who have COVID and so it, it sort of just feels like it's staying steady at this point. We were all bracing for a large surge that didn't come, thank right. goodness. Um, we're all sort of now bracing for a long marathon of patients with COVID. I don't particularly think we're on a downtrend. Um, it's really hard to say though. I just, you yeah. know, one little place in, in a relatively large city to me, Rochester, so I, I don't really know. Yeah, I, it's hard to uh, know. Yeah. Governor I, Cuomo and Mike Mendoza, who is the healthcare commissioner here, I believe. I hope I'm not misstating yes. his title. Um, but he's very up to date about tweeting and things like that. And I feel like he would probably have the best information. Okay. Um, I know at one point Governor Cuomo was talking about taking ventilators from upstate and taking them downstate. And there was a big outcry by our politicians. And it turned out, they weren't needed, but we don't really know what the medical community thought of that. Did you think it was a good idea to lend them or were you really worried about not being able to serve everyone who needed help when they came in? I'll say, I think different, a lot of different people had different opinions. Um, I think we were all worried that if we became overwhelmed, we might not have enough ventilators. Um, but at the same time, it also was very apparent that the need there in New York City is intense and why should people die if there are machines here that aren't being used um, and Governor Cuomo has really taken the reins and I felt that if he you know if he could mobilize resources and move them around as needed then I trusted his decision making and his feel for the situation and so I you know I was agreeable to it I thought I just don't want people dying. I don't want people struggling unnecessarily. So take them. Right, right. Yeah. So do you have any plans to return to work in New York City or other places where the infection rates are rising? Or you, well, you said you use your vacation time. So you're probably here in Rochester for a little while anyway. Yeah, I would, I would love to. Um, I would even be happy to use more vacation time. Um, the problem is, and I think this is a problem everywhere, is there's just not enough of us. Um, if somebody gets sick, our, our entire schedule would be um, kind of nightmarish. Uh, the fact that I was gone for a couple of days was doable, um, but other than that, it's really not something that's sustainable. So 
if things calm down and they're in this area and there's a place elsewhere where I could potentially go volunteer, I absolutely would. But you mentioned that you were, and your coworkers were worried about you bringing the virus back. Is that, is that a fear that you live with? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, being tested and having a negative test is somewhat reassuring, but the mm -hmm. false negative rate is also not so reassuring um, or is not so reassuring, I should say. Yeah. Um, I feel like we are pretty adequately protected. I would be very careful not to bring it home as best I can. I mean, I am quarantining outside of work. Um, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not really seeing anybody if I can help it. Um, so I, I think I would be careful, but yeah, it is a fear. Absolutely. Um, so um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you really want people to know about or things that, that we don't understand? I think, um, I think I would probably just repeat what you had just said is um, not so much as a question, but as a fact is that there's so much that we don't understand. Um, I think that everyone is afraid and everyone is frustrated um, and there's so little that we know and we're all reaching for little small fruit, low hanging fruit uh, in terms of information, but um, it will come. And I put my trust in some of the healthcare experts that are trying to get the answers for us. Um, it's very easy to grab onto ideas and not just in the media, but in, in medicine to grab onto ideas and, and hope that they're going to be the answer and they're not. And so we do the best we can with what we know. And, and I think everyone is doing the best they can and to just keep that spirit strong and to, to make sure you're listening for the right information. Yeah, I think that sounds like great advice. So Dr. Christina Rager, thank you so much for all you've done and are doing for the victims of this pandemic and for healthcare in Rochester. We're really lucky to have you here. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on MatCast today. Thank you. MatCast is a production of the Department of Media and Communication at St. John Fisher College. Listen on SoundCloud and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and like us on social media so others can find and enjoy these conversations. Jenna Ferrari is our audio producer. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Dr. Joseph Lopicaro. Jordan Proietti designed our logo. Cecil Felton is executive producer. And I'm Lauren Vicker. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week as we celebrate the class of 2020.